Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown With, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Nerida Bradley. Hi Nerida, how's things? <laughs> Hi Kieran, not bad thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad. How are you dealing with lockdown? Um, up and down. I mm. kind of go through periods where... Well, just even throughout the day, my mood is fluctuating a great deal. I'll kind of cry in the morning, and then by the afternoon, I'll go and sit in my car park and right. touch other people's cats, and then I'm very happy. Um, so, yeah, just trying to take things a day at a time, really. How about you? Yeah, I, I guess I'm seeing really ups and downs. It, it hits you at different points, I think. And sometimes you don't know when it's going to come on, and then it does. Uh, it's about getting through that, but that can be tough. It, it is a tough time, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing, is I think we're kind of striving for making work and making creative decisions and thinking about how to make like changes mm. and, and strides in our industry, even though kind of we're currently having only our base needs met, you know, like... Well, hope not all of us, but most of us have kind of shelter and food and things like that, yeah. and like it's our core human needs. But we're all like, why am I not being productive? And, and there seems to me like there's a pressure to make work under these conditions. Because everyone else is making work, you should be right and stuff. And, uh, I feel like these artists don't need that pressure, to be honest. Yeah, it gives that space to do nothing for a bit. Definitely need that. Uh, I want to start where I normally start with these podcasts and ask you, how did you get interested in theatre and the arts uh, in the first place as a child and as a young person? church down by my house um I guess that I was always kind of playing imaginary games and I was just always quite a because I'm, I'm quite a shy person so drama mm. and kind of um yeah imagination's always been a bit of a a place for me quite a safe space but also quite something that's really helped me develop my confidence um yeah being shy and being <laughs> a very <laughs> weird child um that's when I was really young, that's kind of what I wanted to do. And I was like, I'm going to be an actor, mum. Mum's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then when I was a teenager, I started, um, I found out about plays and about writing plays. And I joined uh, this youth group, like youth writers course at the Traverse in Edinburgh. And that's kind of how I got into like theatre. Because I wanted, I wanted to write plays. Uh, was that when you kind of started to think of it as this is kind of what I want to do? Yeah, yeah, because I was always like, I, I loved performing when I was I was younger, and then when I got kind of more teenage and more awkward, I was like, this isn't for me. Um, I just didn't like being looked at, and so I was like, oh, I can be a writer because then I can be involved in theatre and make stuff, but then <laughs> no one has to see me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was like, from that age of like. 15 till I go to university, I was, I'm going to be a playwright, that's what I'm going to do. 
<laughs> and how? What was it be like being part of that? Like, how did it kind of not? I guess it improved your confidence. But how did it kind of develop you as a writer as well? Oh, completely. Like I think just learning how stories work, and also so you learn how the basis of kind of storytelling and narrative arc and all that sort of like your toolbox. But then you also do so many like different prompts and different mm. things, and each session has a different emphasis. So I was part of the youth group that was called Scribble, and then I joined the Young Writers as well before I left Edinburgh. Um, and you'd have sessions with different playwrights. So I, yeah, I think it's essential. Like it was so important for me, and also as a direct like director now, it's informs a lot of my practice about like how mm. like the science of storytelling. Because they have that understanding of how plays are formed mm. and the structure of them in terms of translating that into directing, you can deconstruct plays really easily and take more yeah, part, yeah. I guess. And I'd like, especially, I do a lot of kind of script reading and editing, as, <laughs> as you well know. Yes. I love, I love telling people what I think about their stuff. You're very <laughs> honest. <laughs> <Pretty young. laughs> I'm very good at it. Someone please hire me. <laughs> and um how did you first become interested in, in directing them? Was that something around the same time or was it after you started writing? That was that was much later actually. That was when I came to university. So I did the, the theatre and drama BA at the atrium. Um, and we had a module called like practical lab, I think, and we did a lot of like actor training and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we did one one assessment which was performing a monologue, and one was directing it. Um, and I, that was the first time I'd ever really directed, mm -hmm. um, and I directed <laughs> the the famous monologue from Crave, um, which is just obviously yeah. And that was where I was like, oh my god, this is it, like. I get to work with people, it's not as kind of isolating as writing, like it kind of felt like a, a nice medium between, um, yeah, being practical and being theoretical and yeah. just working with people but not having to be like in the centre of attention. <laughs> um, yeah, so I did that and then that's like, I think that was at the very end of my first year and then I applied to the Young Arts Festival at the other room, that's yeah. like a couple of weeks later to direct there. Was it kind of off the back of that um, that you had the confidence to apply for the Young Artist Festival and thought, you know, this is actually something that I'm good at and something that I can do, sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think I was still, I was definitely still forming confidence. I think it was one of those things that I was like, I loved it. I didn't know how good I was, I was at it, but I was like, I love this, I want to do this more, and I want to, like, yeah, yeah. Did you consider doing the script writing course at USW as opposed to the theatre and drama degree? I did, I applied for both, I think. And How things could have been different. Yes, we <laughs> <laughs> Might have been on the same course as you. I could have been criticising your plays <laughs> on a regular basis. <laughs> No, I mean, and your time at USW, um, do you think it, what was the course like? Um, do you think that it prepared you for a career outside of education, within the arts? Hmm. Um, there was certainly, the thing I like about the degree is it's so broad that you can kind of cater it to your own interests. Obviously you have some kind of mandatory modules, but it's very it's very broad and also I think you get in as much as you, sorry, you get out as much as you put into it because mm -hmm. you've got the space and you've got the library and stuff. You can kind of, you can either just do the degree and I do your assessments or you can kind of use it to how your advantage. Um, I wouldn't say it necessarily prepared me for the industry at all just because like, I think the way that I've kind of made my work in Cardiff, or started to work in Cardiff with stuff I did outside of uni. Um, but there's certainly, definitely certain modules that really 
shape the way I work, especially things like we had an applied drama module with uh, Miranda Balin. Right. Um, from Valley Kids. I think is the name of the organisation. Val- Valley Kids, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she she was amazing. And they, again, they'd have different practitioners come in and deliver the sessions. So I think things like that and also just being given the state, the platform to make work mm. and keep making doing a lot of devising and a lot of kind of like performance art kind of stuff was really formative, but not so much career-wise, I wouldn't say. Was it nice to have that freedom to be able to experiment and try things out when you're making your own work? Yeah, completely, completely. Like having that, having that like physical spaces in like rehearsal rooms, mm. also kind of being given provocations from different practitioners and different texts, and yeah, mm. kind of channeling it to your own interests. And a supportive environment as well, I guess. Non judgmental environment. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to ask you next about. You're from Edinburgh. Um, uh, how does the theatre ecology in Edinburgh compare to that of Cardiff, where you live now? I'll be quite. I'll be quite open to say that I've not. Obviously, I've been away from Edinburgh for quite a few years. Yeah. So I would. I wouldn't consider myself an expert in the Edinburgh theatre ecology. Um, I think Cardiff's got much more of a fringe scene. I think both Edinburgh and Cardiff have a real um core in new writing. Obviously, in Edinburgh you've got the Traverse, um, and in Cardiff you've got like you know loads and loads of places doing mm. new writing. I think, yeah, with Cardiff, there's definitely more of a fringe, fringe scene and thin fringe right. ecology. Whereas in Edinburgh, it's kind of if you want if you want fringe theatre, you go to Glasgow. Right. You really have Edinburgh fringe, obviously. So for like a whole month, the city gets populated with all these amazing artists from all over the world, and it's such an abundance mm-hmm. of new work and like bold work, and that's where you go to get seen. But it's also as an ecology, I don't think it really works. I don't think it's very sustainable. Um, it's a great place for artists to get seen and to get uh, programmed in other places and it's just like it's so much fun but for the rest of the year it's kind of like I suppose it's just one month and um, mm-hmm. artists and shows from all the all around the world come to Edinburgh and it's not really a platform for Scottish artists is it? No it's not and it also kind of with the politics of it as well Places like Underbelly are really capitalising on Edinburgh as a city. Right. So things like Scottish traditions like Hogmanay, Underbelly make a real <laughs> they make a real mint out of us. Like they'll close off uh, Princess Street and charge you to come onto it. Like people get charged for trying to go out their own houses for like the, like things like torch procession and like New Year's. Mm. It's just like yeah, it's not it's not um, and it's still a balance to be found there. The commercialization of it, mm. and you know anything to make a couple of quid, is that yeah, the yeah. case? But that's the thing that Edinburgh Fringe is seen as like the place to go to get your work seen, and to yeah, to like to make it. You know, you can make mm. it go to the fringe, um, but it's just like it costs so much money. Mm. <laughs> uh, what What were your experiences at the fringe like? You know, you. Mm taking shows there a couple of times too. Yeah, so mine have always been kind of dipping my toe in. I've not done, mm. I've not like properly taking a show to a fringe. I had, I worked on the show that was part of Free Fringe and then I worked on one that was with Royal Welsh so the venue hire and stuff was covered by the college. Right. So there's never been sort of, um, I've never taken a show up that's like, I have, fine, I'm, I'm getting paid for or I have kind of financial responsibility. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, it's, I've kind of, yeah, dipped my toe in a little bit. Um, yeah. Is that something that you would like to do in future? I think so. I mean, <laughs> whatever happens to that in the fringe, I don't know what's going to happen to the <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, I don't think the festival's going to go ahead for a few years, I imagine. But like, that's, that's no. purely me speculating in terms of like politics of space and the whole city being mm-hmm. full with people um yeah i think it is such a great 
platform, I think it's just a lot of work to be done in terms mm. of making it more accessible for artists to attend. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, uh, you were training your director at the other room. Um, how, how did you get involved with the other room in the first place? Um, so I started off in the, so directing at the Young Artist Festival in 2017. Mm. Um, and then I got asked by Izzy Raby to assistant director on Hang off the back of that. I yeah. think she was looking for an assistant director. I think they kind of they go back through people who they've worked with before and people who have done their artist development platforms. I was, was just one of the names that was floating around, I think. Um, <laughs> which I was, I was very excited about. I was telling this story. We had the other room like leaving Zoom last night. And so I was telling the story about I got an email from Izzy asking me to, to do it. Um, or asked me to interview when I was in Berlin. I was so excited by it that I walked out of this cafe without paying. <laughs> so I was like on the other side of Berlin, like in an art gallery, and I was like, like I forgot to pay. And I was like, oh, I felt so guilty that I went across to the other side of Berlin to pay. I think it was only yeah. like 10 euros, and they were like, what have you come back? And I was like, I'm sorry, it's not really exciting. Job offer. Um, so very, very uncool. Um, so, so yeah, I assisted on Hang, that was in 2017, and I think after that, like, I, I emailed Dan Jones, and I was like, hello, I didn't have very many contact hours mm -hmm. at um, uni, and I was like, if you ever need anyone to, like, come in and, like, clean the floor, or, like, do any odd jobs, like, I've mm -hmm. not got much on. Um, and that was just a case of getting your name out there, I guess, letting Dan know who you were. Yeah, and yeah. that you were about, and that you were interested in directing. Yeah, yeah, so off the back of that, I was kind of like, I was unofficial trainee director for a while, like before the PPP programme came in, which yeah. allowed them to probably like, um, so that's when Sam came in. Um, so off the back of that, I assisted on All But Gone, and I did like education facts and stuff for them, and I was just there. Uh, and then for, I think it was 2018 to 2019, I was arts placement there, so I just mm. did, I did a lot of work in kind of making access materials, so like an access plan, and I was doing audio flyers and mm. uh, image descriptions and all that sort of stuff, and then also doing a lot of like heavy lifting. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah, heavy lifting, well I didn't, I didn't do very much lifting, I did lots of falling and hurting myself. <laughs> <laughs> And, and yeah. did, the, did you kind of learn about how a theatre works, like, just how it operates day to day, I guess? Mm, yeah, completely, because I'd be at a team meeting and I'd kind of understand how how the programming structure worked and what, what the identity of the building was and what kind of work they wanted. Yeah, like you say, what goes into producing a show. Um, so I think when it, when it came around to interviewing to become trained director for that, that paid role, I kind of had a bit of an advantage, I think, because mm -hmm. I, I knew the ins and the outs of the building, I knew what what they were about, really. What kind of work they make, what kind of artists they work with, yeah. and what their, yeah, yeah. what their identity is. Hmm. What was it like working under Dan Jones, the artistic director? Oh, terrible. Yeah, oh. <laughs> He's awful, isn't he? He's so bad to work with. God. God. Don't trust him. <laughs> yeah, I, again, I feel, I feel very fortunate that I think my, my getting involved in uh, the kind of theatre scene so young, a lot of that is down to Dan kind of taking a pun on me as mm. an artist. Um, so I, I owe a lot to him. I think he's very good at yeah, it once if he, what am I trying to say? I think he, when he invests in an artist, I think when the other invests in artists, they really push them and give them that platform to let them go on to, to work on mm. bigger things and bigger spaces. Um, and they're, they're very giving with their time and their support and their advice. Like, you never feel, um, you always feel able to ask them for things. Mm. Um, so I think working under Dan, especially, I think I, I started working at the other room just when Dan had been appointed AD. So it's a real period of transition as well, kind of figuring out yeah. 
for the past few years what the other room is under Dan. I think Dan's still figuring that out. But it's really exciting, I think. And have you learned from him in terms of your directing process? Um, yeah, I'd say so. Like, I think that's the thing. When you assist different directors, everyone's got their own style. So you mm. kind of pick, and pick out the bits that you like from each mm. of them and kind of collage together your own original ideas. Dan's very, like... Dan is very um, good with people. I think he's very good at reading the room. He's very good at, um, at asking people what they think and what they feel, yeah. and, like making actors comfortable. But then he's also quite, he's very, he's got a really rigorous understanding of text as well. And, and have you taken those things and thought, I can kind of develop that in my own practice? Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What, what would you say your process is? That's an interesting question, Kieran. <laughs> Does it change I, depending on, on like what piece you're working on? Yeah, I'd say so. I think my natural taste is quite, I love things that work with play with form and kind of break up form. I quite like um, things that are quite text that don't give you all the answers. Um, so I think the way I work on something is quite like straight naturalism is quite different to if I'm working on things that um, text that are a bit more, yeah, a lot more fluid and a lot uh, more poetic or abstract maybe. Um, I think a, a huge thing for me is like, is letting the actors is empowering actors to make their own choices and then shaping that. Yeah. Um, I, like, I, I find it really boring to be like, you stand over there and you walk in and then you sit down. Like, mm, yeah. I'd rather, like, I, I'd rather use kind of structured improvisations or like going through text with actors and like find, helping them find their own interpretation and then shaping and guiding that as opposed to me being like, telling people what to do. Because then you're giving those actors the freedom to explore those characters and find things for themselves that you might not have picked up on as a director. Yeah, completely, because otherwise it's just one person's vision. And I think you can see it on stage when you can see an actor's been told to do something. It's not coming from them, it's not coming yeah. from their body or their urges. Like, And that's what I'm really interested in, is like creating a space where it's kind of, you can improvise and just play around and lots of play and lots of uh, exploring and then using those kind of that instinct and be like oh let's we like that let's shape that rather than so it so it comes from them and it feels organic picking up the material which comes out of that which works and not having the pressure of you've got to derive something perfect first time just having yeah, that yeah. room there that exploration to play, which I think is really important. Mm, yeah, and I like I I don't really like that idea of like a perfect finished product. If I want to go watch something, I want it to be different every time. Mm. I don't want the same actions repeated. I'd rather keep that kind of play so that every night you're like, oh, that's what that's what makes theatre different from film and TV. You know, you can get that on film and TV. But with theatre, part of the enjoyment is that it is different every night. No audience will go to see the same piece and have the exact same experience of it. Yeah. That's the beauty. Uh, and in terms of, of space, like the other uh, space, like the other room, which is quite a small space. What are the challenges of directing pieces in a space like that? I guess again, you're, you're limited. <laughs> you're limited in space. You're limited in the in the decisions and the way you can use that space. I think you know there's only so many bodies you can fit on, and only so many ways that the bodies can be configured in the mm. space. Um, I guess it, I think the intimacy is a great thing. That's what's great about the other room is that like you you can't escape. The, the likeness you can't escape the audience because you're absolutely right there. Bless um, <coughs> you. Sorry, hay fever is going <laughs> crazy. Yeah, hay fever, not coronavirus. <laughs> I was more meaning you 
I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I think sometimes when you, I think I remember assisting Matilda Lopez and she said that she likes to put herself in the most difficult situation possible and then try and figure her way to have to work out of it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of, that refers to the other room as well, I think, in that like you have this small space, you know, this is all we have. How can we make this the most interesting thing possible? Have there been pieces where you thought that is never going to work in this space? Anything with more than like five people yeah. in it is <laughs> very small. Um, I don't know because I think the other room can do naturalism. I think it's not what it, it's made for. I think the best pieces that fit in the other room are the ones where you get transported into a new world. Yeah. So I think things like Crave and I'm biased because I worked on both two. Then also shows like Sinners Club, you know, you go into a completely new world and like just walking through the door into this little room and I think that's what works the best is when yeah. it's not just the, the place the whole everything around it as well an atmosphere is created and your audience mm. begins to think where am I where am yeah. I now and they're transported into a world that they're not familiar with mm. that creates an atmosphere within that space mm. um you you've also written for the Young Artist Festival at the other room as a participant writer and a commissioned writer last year. Uh, when you're writing the piece that you wrote last year was for quite a large cast. So what the challenge is, not only in terms of space, but in writing for that large cast giving those actors kind of equal weight. I know that the piece you wrote was quite stylized, for want of a better term. Mm. So was that in... So I guess, start, were you given a brief kind of you have to write a play for this number of actors? I think, what was it? I think it's something between, they asked you to write between like three and six maybe was the I think that that's the best they specified you have to kind of write for a, a slightly large cast size and then there's no kind of theme no. um they just ask that you write I think Dan always thinks writing conceptually works best for the yeah because you kind of you challenge your your directors especially that way and your actors to kind of think can you explain what you mean by writing conceptually <laughs> a Dan Jones word not mine um, I think like writing um, potentially more abstractly, right. something that's like doesn't give your director all the clues. Something that's a little bit more experimentational. Is that experimentational? I mean, yes. it works. I know you. Yeah, I've said it. I'm gonna say it with confidence. <laughs> so that's a little bit more um, exper experimental. Experimental. Experimentational. No, no. <laughs> It's, fine. it's not like anyone's listening. No. It's not, it's not like we've, we've recorded that. <laughs> Experimental. Um, and yeah, things that play around with form and, and concept as opposed to being like an A to B narrative. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's what they tend to want um, for the writers. So yeah. I guess pieces which leave, which aren't kind of in terms of narrative which aren't fully formed, which leave the audience wanting something at the end, because they're ten-minute pieces, and it can be yeah. hard to tell a complete story within that time. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a really nice way to introduce actors as well. It's not kind of like a, I'm a character. I think you spend too much time. I think it's hard to write for ten minutes if you're trying to establish characters and then round off the, a whole journey. Yeah. You know, you don't really have time for that either. It's quite nice to leave it a little bit raw and a little bit unfinished, I think. And seeing your piece um, performed on stage, what was that like? What's that like as an experience? I, I, I really struggled with it. I really, um, I think especially because that year in Yap, I think mine was a little bit of a 
a black sheep, kind of the emo, the emo cousin of, of the lineup. Um, I mean, I didn't want to say that, but it's <laughs> <laughs> what we were all thinking. So I was kind of watching it and going, "Oh God, this is this is a bit emo, isn't it?" Um, like I was like, I I have so much trust in everything Alice Eckler who directed it. So I was like, yeah. so much trust in her as an artist. Um, and she, yeah, she did a great job. So, but again, like I think it's one of those things that I was like, I it, I wasn't happy with the text, but I had to kind of be like. You know, it's ten minutes. Yeah. Have you uh, developed it since? I think I went back to it a bit. It's one of those things that I think I need to take a bit of time away. Yeah. Just because as a process, I find I find redrafting quite hard because a lot of the place I write from. So the piece I wrote for Yak originally stemmed from like a free writing poem thing I did. Uh, I wrote it. Um, I wrote it on a train from Peter Cloyd down to Cardiff and it was like 5am because I was like oh I went up to Theatre Court for a visit or something and I had uni the next morning so I got up at like 4.30 and I was like bang out that's a long train journey it was so bad honestly so that's that's what I'm going to blame the piece on the fact that I wrote it but like <laughs> so early um, yeah I'd like to direct uh, not direct it develop it a bit more I think I like to write things that I I'd enjoy directing, not that I want yeah. to direct my own work, but things that are the same sort of, um, present a bit of a challenge or some freedom to a director, I think. Do you think you would struggle directing your own work? Do you think, um, you know, you would have not enough space to explore because maybe you had one vision of that piece as the writer? too much of me that way yeah um my partner miles is an illustrator and he always talks about how when you when you have like a a picture book or something the text says one thing and the illustration says another or emphasizes an element of the text or emphasizes it it the two can't say the same thing because otherwise there's like they have to do something different um so which is what how i kind of think about text and direction is that you, your direction can't do what your text is already doing. It needs to add another layer on top of it. And the same with right. the actors, the same with the design. So it kind of like, I feel like if I was to direct my own writing, I'd, it, it would be saying the same thing. You just wouldn't be adding that extra layer on top of it? No, it would just be me. <laughs> Everyone would be like, I'm not going to pay to watch this. It's just uh, narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think that anyway, but you know that. <laughs> I, I want to talk about Trans Pride Cymru, mm -hmm. um, which you started in 2018, I want to say. Yeah, I think we we started the planning for it in 2018. The first, uh, the 2019 one took place at the end of March, and then we haven't had one this year, just for various... <laughs> I can't think why. Yeah, I, I can't think why either. How, how um, did you decide um, on this? How did you come up with this idea? Because you and your partner Miles, it was your idea originally. Um, yeah. Cause did you kind of think there's nothing like this in Wales, so why don't we kind of start saying? Yeah, so I think, um, I think I've, Mars and I have always both struggled with the commercialization of pride and um, the commercialization of queerness really it's one of those things again that pops up right. <laughs> for a month and everything's covered in rainbows and then everyone goes away again it's a lot more especially in Cardiff I want to say I'm, I'm not a fan of pride in Cardiff I think it's like and in Edinburgh to be fair like it's just it's, it's not made for for queer communities, I would argue, in, in my opinion, um, and it definitely doesn't serve the needs of a lot of grassroots trans organisations and trans yeah. people. I'd, I would argue trans the needs of the trans community are different to what Pride can give them, and I think, I think it had just been after another a Pride month, and Mars and I were kind of like, this is just not this isn't like we need something else with like this isn't providing us with what 
our community needs. Did you feel there were elements of it that were trans-exclusionary? Oh yeah, completely. I think, again, I think there's, there's kind of, <laughs> I don't know, I think still these days, um, kind of in the Western world, there's still mm-hmm. an acceptable face of the queer community and it's, it's not trans people at all. Trans people are like, as I think people, when people think about LGBT rights, they think about equal marriage and that's definitely a part of it, but it's not like it's trans rights are so far behind yeah um so yeah we were like oh we <laughs> do you know it'd be a really good idea we'll just we'll just set up a festival we'll just do it yeah and then it was only through doing it we realized we had absolutely no idea what we were doing <laughs> sometimes <laughs> that's kind of that's where you jump in and yeah. realize how fucked you are like how it <laughs> yeah we were just like yeah yeah it'll be a laugh it'll be, it'll be great it'll be great what do you mean we have to take out like public liability insurance? Like, <laughs> to like, these kind of mad, weird, like, uh, not very um, business like people being like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. Um, yeah. How happy were you with the way it turned out? I think I was, I think I was actually quite happy with it for a first year. It was a lot of, it was a huge learning curve for us, definitely. But I think in terms of the ethos of the festival and the events that we, we managed to get, I was really happy. It felt like, because they were all, um, they were all in kind of like small community spaces or like cafes and small um, arts venues in Cardiff to try and like, because again, like the thing about Pride, it's like, we're here, we're queer, like it's loud and it's beautiful mm. and if you can do that, then that's amazing. But that's not an option for everyone, um, especially for, like just from a practical safety point of view. Um, so that was one thing that we were like, this needs to be kind of a little bit quieter and a little bit kind of not not that we want trans people to live in the shadows at all, but just in kind of a there was a huge I think it was maybe around the time of the GRA, so we were like where there's a lot of <laughs> a surge in transphobic right. actions. Um, but then also we had some amazing events. We had events on like sex and sexuality for trans people with Recamp Davies. We had events with Rainbow Bridge who do um, LGBT domestic abuse uh, support mm. and anti-hate crime. We had like a LGBT life drawing um, session. We had like a clothes swap at Ripple Living. So like loads and loads of really cool yeah. events, uh, which were all free as well, because that's another thing. And was there a good level of community engagement? Um, yeah, I would, we had people at every event, so that that, that seemed that that that's all I wanted, and that happened. And also, yeah, it was very much like for the the trans community, which mm. was important to me. Definitely. Um, you're currently the co-artistic director of Runamuckfield Company along yes. with Izzy really. Um, what have you learned from working with Izzy and how has it kind of developed you as a creative person I guess? Mm. I mean Izzy's just like, Izzy is amazing. Um, I think because she, she works in an applied drama practitioner, she's so socially engaged. They also informed a lot of her directing practice as well. She's a great facilitator, um, which I think the two practices really inform each other. She's she's got a, an insane work ethic as well. Like when we were doing microwave in the months leading up, she was commuting to and from London. Wow. Where she she's training director at the Royal Court at the moment, so she was uh, commuting from that job to work with um, one of her women's groups on the Monday, and then she went back to London, and that was like on the run. So she's just got an insane drive as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I like. Her politics are just so sound and so ingrained in her work, but yeah, I take a lot from it too. Is that something you want to emulate? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not on that level yet, but I think, yeah, I think, I think art has to be, if you, if art, I read something the other day that was like, if art says, does what we say art does, then we wouldn't need engagement departments and theatres, mm. which I think is, you know, when we're making stuff, we need to think about who we're making stuff and why we're making it. Otherwise, there's no point just screaming into the void. It needs to be for people and with people, I think. 
Because that was the original kind of function of theatre. Do you think in terms of um, theatre and politics, do you think theatre has to make the socio-political, not statements, but like, do you think it has to kind of say something socio-political in order to be classed as theatre? Do you know what I mean? I don't think it has to, I think, I think theatre is already inherently political, I think, you know, when you're looking at, I think art can't be separated from politics, especially, like, even if you're looking at funding, you're talking about government money, you know, if you're, you've already got a power dynamic on, between your, your performers and your audience, even within its mm. very, like, rituals, the rituals of being let into a space, and who gets to let into that space, and how you get to behave in that space, is already, like, inherently political um i don't think you i think people get put off or people get a bit like funny about art and politics because they think that if you if you're talking about politics you need to talk about politics and you need to mm. give a message and you need to like you need to come away knowing something or having changed their mind about something um which i don't think is the case you know i think if you theater so much of theater is about so many plays are about power mm. and i think you don't need to kind of go into a, a monologue about, you know, Westminster in order to make no. uh, art political. It's easier to ask a question, I think, and allow the audience to make up their own minds, mm. but not um, voice their own political opinion on an audience, not be yeah, yeah. It should be that direct. I think. Mm. And, like, I think the best theatre asks those really important questions without kind of fully forming an opinion in the audience's mind one way or the other. I think the danger is, you know, you're creating theatre which has, I'm going to say agenda, has an agenda one way or the other and there's no room for debate around that issue. Which I don't think is ideal. No, no, not at all. You know, no one wants to be kind of given a... You don't want it to fall into kind of TIE, like, area where you're no. like, don't, don't, don't drink, drive, kids, and you come away going, I will, I will never do that. <laughs> um, I, I don't do that, I can't drive. Um, but you know what I mean, like, no one wants to feel preached to. No. People want to be entertained and people want to, I don't know, see stories. Is it difficult to find that balance sometimes? Mm, I would say so, definitely. I think it's like, I think even if you were making something that on the surface is the most unpolitical thing, like just a just a story, I think in, I think that that, who gets to, again, I'm quite interested in audiences and theatre audiences and theatre engagement, like who, who gets to see that art and mm. who that art is for. I think already poses so many questions and issues that like you don't need to you don't need to set out and go like I'm I'm I think no. if you set out and go I'm going to change the world and I'm going to make political theatre like it's already quite problematic because in that you're going I I know something that you don't and I'm going to tell it to you that that the politics of, yeah. of who gets to educate and who is being educated is already like and the people wow. who who have access to theatre largely kind of white working um middle class um non-disabled um the lgbt community correct me if wrong the representation is slightly um better than the other marginalized community from what i've seen but still you know it's largely straight white middle class people who are going so there's a danger of creating like an echo chamber there, I oh, guess. Completely. Like there are so like so many theatre audiences look exactly the same and sometimes you you go to see something and you're like, I know who this is made for and these people already think the same thing, so what was the point of making it? <laughs> Which sounds really hard, but I think that all the time. No. Like, who's who's this for? I mean, you know, the the National Theatre Live stuff, yeah, I've been watching it, I've enjoyed it. But you sit there and think, I know who this is made for. This isn't saying anything. They know their audience and they play to their audience. And you can't really criticise that, I don't 
and apart from saying, yes, you've got an audience which is a functioning audience and pay your bills. Well, not at the moment. But you should be looking outside of that. And you should be um, thinking, how can we engage with people who wouldn't ordinarily come to the theatre? That's exactly it. Like, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever seen anything at the National Theatre. And I'm like, but also, I think, again, like in, I think coronavirus is exposing a lot of things about who gets to access the art because all this time, you know, you, you paid to see an NTW, like an NT live screening in a cinema or you go to, you go to see it or if you can afford to. Like I said, I've never seen anything at the National Theatre. No, man. <laughs> but it's on YouTube now for free. Yeah. Like, if you have this stuff, and you've been I don't know I, there's something that I find quite interesting about how how I'm never going to get hired by them now whatever um, <laughs> how been, like how you've had all this archive material that you've been keeping and then suddenly when you're like oh we can't create the same content as we can anymore oh we'll just give it away for free now when it's kind of like when there's so many I don't know like low income disabled audience like potential audience yeah. members who couldn't access your work before but now can because you can't make it in the same way. Why didn't they think about access before this crisis? Like, with so many things, like, oh, it's online now, which is great, but why didn't you think about access like this before this crisis? It's now it's affecting non-disabled people. That's literally it. Oh, is it? it? Oh, God. Oh, like, this is, this is like, um, someone of my friends tweeted something like, AIDS is finally experiencing ableism and And then you see, like, non-disabled people complaining about the quote-unquote ableism that they've experienced, and you're like, this has been my life for the last 25 years, you Honestly, know. Honestly, it's like uh, lectures and stuff now being available online, like remote learning, and you're just like, do you know how many people would have benefited from this if you'd made these accommodations for disabled de- students? Definitely. I mean, yeah. it's just really frustrating. Um... But I'm gonna move on. Um, <laughs> to another time. <laughs> we're going down River Avenue. <laughs> but um, you were the co-director of Small Fry by Hannah Lloyd, who we've had on a previous episode of this podcast. Um, what's it like working as a co-director as opposed to a director or an assistant? And can you talk about the level of creative control that you had on that project? Mm. I think when you assist, everything is always a different experience, and that that can be due to someone's practice, that can be down to the kind of play, that can be Mm. down to something like the size of the team. Um, So how much creative voice you you get in that process, it really varies. Like, I've had jobs where I, I sit at the back of the room for like six weeks and do in my mind very very little um but i'm like i'm there and then i've had uh experiences like in in working on crave i had a lot more kind of creative voice and creative control um so i think i would argue that co-directing kind of comes a little bit at at that end of the spectrum um whereas again you when you're directing you're always working with people and you're always Mm. kind of facilitating ideas and that exchange and i think it's just you're doing it with another director as opposed to just with an actor and again it can be really nice to have uh like sometimes in directing it can like even if you're very facilitary um you you still get the fear that you're like i've made all these decisions and if these are all bad then everything is terrible and it will mm. be my fault yeah um so it can be really nice to have someone else there to kind of share the blame and the, and the not share the blame but share like uh, share the responsibility mm. and have have an, another another layer. Who are you co-directing with? Di Thomas. Oh no doubt. Yeah. Yeah yeah. Good egg. And um small fly is quite it's about um it's quite a Welsh piece Welsh mm. kind of did you, were there elements of that that you struggled to like identify with or get into the 
headspace of. Mm. I think the great thing about Hannah's writing is it's so based in geography. Like, she maps out Cardiff so well that you're like, I know where this is, even if you, you're not well. Yeah. She kind of like, the geography helps you to map out the character journey and what, how she negotiates that space. Um, yeah, I think, I think again, because we had Yaz, we had Hannah, we had Di, like I felt, I felt like I had people mm. around me who, who knew about, about that more than I did. Yeah. And like, very happy to listen and learn from other people. I don't, like, I'd, I'd hate to kind of impose. And you've got to have confidence in. And you've got to have confidence in those voices because they yeah. have that experience as well. So. Yeah, I think it's so important. Like, if you don't know anything, or if it's not your your lived experience, I just think it's so important. Just shut up and listen. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um. Finally, what what advice would you give to someone who is just starting out in the industry? Thank you, Nerd. It's been great talking to you. Thank you uh, for having me. You're more than welcome. Um, please tune in for the next episode of In Lockdown With. Um, I'll see you then. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.